it's one thing to line up all the commitments and agreements necessary with payers to receive bundled payments. It's quite another to have all of this supported and underwritten by flawless patient care design, appropriate staffing, and buy-in from providers and patients alike. While making sense of which CMS bundled payment model it's best to sign on for is at one level very technical, as is appreciating the details in 48 different episodes of care, the choices have to be matched by doctors and nurses and clinical and administrative support staff eager to implement the most effective care possible. And this often means doing things just a bit differently. We're gonna delve into what this looks like at a couple of organizations and some take a kind of broad brush at this as well on this edition of WIHI. And welcome to WIHI, an online audio talk show from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, coming to you bi-weekly and also for later listening and convenience. You can find this on IHI.org and on iTunes. I'm your host and producer, Madge Kaplan, and I'm also IHI's Director of Communications. Major joint replacement of the lower extremity, often known as hip and knee replacement, is one area where healthcare delivery is wading into global and bundled payments. Another is stroke care, neuro care, other cardiac issues. The chance to realize financial savings often gets the most attention, and we will touch on that today too. But this, for this WIHI, we're going to fix our gaze most on the processes and the people needed to deliver best care and deliver the best value under new payment arrangements. So we've got a great panel on board with us today. I'm so glad you've tuned to us, and I'm gonna introduce them in just a moment, our panel, but first here's IHI's John Gothier. He has some reminders about how to make the most of your time with us on WIHI. John. All right, Madge, uh, just a few items today to make it help everybody make the most of today's program. On the right of our screen is the chat window. If you've tuned into WIHI before, you know about the great conversation that takes place in the chat. It's also where you can ask our panelists your questions. So make sure that your questions and comments are directed to all participants when Madge opens up the floor to the questions. This allows our panelists and your colleagues on WebEx to see all questions and comments being shared. Now, there are a few ways that people have connected to WIHI today. If you're logged onto the computer and listening to the program by streaming audio, coming through speakers or your headphones, you'll see a box in the top right-hand corner labeled audio broadcast. If you're on a less reliable internet connection today, we recommend calling in on the phone. If you experience any audio issues, please send a quick message to the host in the chat. But a simple solution to any audio hiccups may be to press, the pause, press pause on the WebEx audio player and then press play again. If that problem persists, please let the folks at IHI Customer Service know, and their number is on the screen right now. Also, if you're hoping to get your hands on today's slide, I'll provide a direct download link in the chat. Tomorrow, they'll be posted at our archive over at IHI.org slash WIHI, along with today's chat and our other helpful articles and resources mentioned by the guests. You can also email info at IHI.org, and they'll send them your way. And finally, we're always looking for ways to improve the listener experience here on WIHI, and we need your help for that. Please take some time after the program to fill out a quick survey and let us know how we've done. Back to you, Madge. All right, thanks again. If you're a tweeter and you like to use Twitter, <laughs> include at the IHI in your tweets so we can in, um, enlarge the conversation. And uh, don't forget to start thinking of questions and comments you'd like to make when we get to the half hour mark and you can ask our guests whatever is going on in your domain compared to what uh, you'll hear about today. <coughs> So I'm going to now introduce our guests uh, on the phone from Long Island, New York, where um, I guess I'm jealous because I'm hearing about beach weather 
uh, I did hear it was in the 60s in New York City. We got up there a little bit in Boston. So happy for you folks at North Shore Long Island Jewish. That includes Mark Jarrett. He's the Chief Quality Officer, Senior Vice President, and Associate Chief Medical Officer at North Shore Long Island Jewish Health System. As Chief Quality Officer, Dr. Jarrett is responsible for system-wide initiatives and quality in quality and safety. Welcome, Mark. Thank you. Alongside Mark, there's Susan Browning. She presently serves as Vice President for several service lines within North Shore LIJ. In this role, she has overall administration responsibility for, among other things, operational excellence, clinical programming, development, and ongoing quality improvement across the continuum of care. So glad you and Mark are both with us, Susan Browning. Thank you. Closer to home, Alice Erisman. Uh, is a healthcare quality specialist at Bay State Medical Center out in Springfield, Massachusetts. Her job involves supporting all teams involved in the care of the bundled populations, including all post-acute partners, and that's to ensure quality project implementation. Welcome, Alice. Thank you. All right. And there's more. Mark Hiller is Vice President for Innovative Solutions at Premier Inc., he leads the premier bundled payment collaborative that's providing education, episode development, care redesign, quality, and other measurement, cost reduction, identification, physician alignment, gain sharing. What aren't, aren't they doing, I should say? Welcome, Mark Hiller. Thank you very much, Madge. Okay, great. And if any volumes are a little low, we'll make sure to adjust all that as we get underway. And finally, last but never least, is IHI's own Catherine Luther. Kathy Luther, we call her. She's vice president at IHI. She's responsible for furthering IHI's work to help hospital leaders and staff achieve bold aims like the ones we're talking about today. So welcome, Kathy, and all guests. Hi, Kathy. Hi, Madge, and welcome to everyone. Okay, great. All right, Kathy, we're going to start with you. Um, I think you'd agree that IHI certainly welcomes payment reform that's tied to higher quality and better value, but we're also mindful that there are a lot of layers to this and all the changes necessary. So I thought we'd start out by asking you from your work in view of the field, how ready are healthcare providers to partake in value-based programs like bundled payments? Thanks, Kathy. Well, um, thanks, Madge, and I think everyone that's in the industry today can certainly um, agree that things need to change. How they need to change, um, no one's quite sure, but um, they are changing under our feet. And as you indicated, IHI does welcome payment reform, and really more specifically, it's linked to higher quality and better value. Um, in some ways, historically, we all know that not only have these things not been linked, but actually have many times been working at cross-purposes. So we see focusing on a value as a way to bridge some ga large gaps that have existed in the fee-for-service system. Today we'll hear from our, our panelists um, how they're working through this in their organizations, but first let's set a little bit broader framing and context. From our work at IHI, we focus on care redesign at the care team level at what we refer to as after the ink is dry. And by that, we mean that under these payment me mechanisms, not only will agreements and contracts and those sorts of things need to be crafted differently, but really crucial to success will be how care teams learn to work together differently, what information they have access to, how they measure outcomes together, and how they define success. We see this in three components. The first one is clinical and financial partnerships. 
here we need to see there needs to be real trust between finance, physicians, and clinicians. Historically, these relationships have been uh, at best slightly distrustful and at worst adversarial. We see our best successes when these disciplines really come together, they learn to speak each other's language, and they come to common agreement on processes and goals. The second um, component we see is focusing on clinical conditions. This goes way beyond DRGs, and an interesting thing is that finance thinks sometimes DRGs are a clinical designation, and clinicians think they're a financial designation because they really don't capture patients in the way clinicians think about them. Clinicians think about complex conditions, and they see intersections of multiple conditions that are really beyond what DRGs capture. They also see um, social factors at high cost. So we need to really go beyond this and focus on clinical conditions, and we'll talk a little bit more about that, and you'll hear from our um, panelists how they're working at that. And finally, we need leadership structures that actually support the work. This requires much more focused and tactical efforts than we've seen in the past. So as you see in the graphic, we see this in a couple of levels. First is the role of the leadership um, of an organization, and we think that they need to do a couple of things. They need to establish a baseline, and they need to link cost, quality, and value together in understandable ways. They really need to assure a culture of transparency, and um, they start on some risk assumption level. And by that means, um, how much risk are, um, is an organization going to work towards? So many organizations already are what we call at risk for their own employees. And that means they're self-insured for health care and other things. Many are also taking on risk in different ways in these bundle payment contracts that we're talking about. Some are way beyond that and thinking about areas and regions where they're um, responsible for. Um, secondly, what are your priorities? What are your annual strategy? How are you going to go about this? What is your migration towards risk assumption contracts? And what's the clinical engagement around that? Um, some um, organizations are already thinking about a community, um, an area of zip code, some other sort of thing where they're working to take risk for um, some sort of a much larger population. And, and we need to be clear within organizations where the strategies are around that. And finally, select some sort of care episodes for the care teams to focus on. This can be as simple as wellness for um, our own employees. This could be complex patients. This could be surgical conditions. And a willingness and a readiness to test things that are not currently in place and new structures and models. What we see below is the role of the implementation team. And the implementation team needs to, um, as we said before, really think about um, speaking the same language, developing a value dashboard. And that means what are the patients saying? What are the long-term outcomes that patients are reporting? What are the things we need to be tracking over time from both a clinical and financial perspective? Um, develop a process map, a clinical process map of where the phases of care are from the patient and clinician point of view. And we um, like to say that this should go as far out as um, a system can go. Some systems really are only inside the walls of their organization. Some have um, tentacles out into communities. Some are working with physician groups. Some have other kinds of processes, both um, pre-hospital and aftercare. 
So they can maybe adopt um, a process method includes complete full cycles of care. Um, you need to think about variation and what that means, what's the cost of that, how clinicians contribute to that, how they can see the results of that, obviously develop an implementation plan, and then finally, um, for organizations, need to think about where are they going to do with these and how are they going to track savings and what, what will they actually do with them. We like to say give the money back. So where does the money go back to? Does it go back to um, actually folks who pay into the system, employees in terms of um, lower insurance rates? Does the money go back in terms of infrastructure? Does the money go back in different ways in establishing wellness centers in clear um, places? So that's just a very high level about how we think about this and new payment reform, but I'm certain that our um, attendees today would be really interested to hear about those of our panelists who are on the ground and really making this work at various levels in their own settings. Okay, thanks, Kathy. You laid the t uh, out quite a bit. And I was thinking, where does the money go um, could be a show unto itself, which I've drawn a circle around. So I'll give some thought to that. Uh, it may come up more today, but also could be a program on WYHI all unto itself. All right, Alice, thanks, Kathy. Alice Erisman, I'll turn to you now from Bay State. Uh, your job really has evolved practically hand in glove with uh, your system's growing engagement with global, excuse me, global payments. So tell us what's been going on, and welcome again. Thank you, Madge, and the IHI team for this opportunity to address the WHI community today. It's truly an honor. Um, I've been at Bay State Medical Center for about 15 years now in various leadership roles. Um, I started here as a nurse manager and gradually moved on, was a pharmacy business and finance manager too. And the reason why I bring that up is that the experience that I gained in those roles um, working with interdisciplinary teams, data analysis, finance has really helped tremendously in my current role in healthcare quality. Uh, before I get started, though, I would like to share a bit about Bay State Medical Center. It is the flagship hospital of Bay State Health, an integrated health delivery system with um, four hospitals. We have our own health plan as well as a large physician practice organization. Um, Bay State's a level one trauma center with 700 beds, and we are proud to be a magnet facility. So I've been navigating bundles now for a little over a year. I actually started at the same time we launched two CMMI bundles. We're currently phase two, model two participants in the total joint replacement and the coronary artery bypass surgery bundles. Um, on a daily basis, I work very closely with the clinical teams for both programs. Um, I do a lot of tracking of data. I track all the patients that, as they enter the bundle, as well as all associated metrics, data, and clinical improvements. Um, I also prepare dashboards and present performance in various forums. Uh, for any bundle to be successful, there really needs to be buy-in from the teams and anyone who touches that patient, but especially from the physicians. Um, ideally, the physician group will have a champion who's engaged in bundle work and is willing to take an active role to improve quality and value for their patient population. Um, I believe we're fortunate to have a surgeon in each bundle that over time and with some bundle education has become actively involved in the bundle improvement work. 
I think that typically in past years, a surgeon may very well have been unaware of costs, the cost of his or her care, and even more unaware of resource utilization or clinical outcomes in comparison to the peer group. Um, we recognized early on that real-time data and reporting would be essential to drive change. And um, one of the dashboards that I do put together every month depicts metrics and outcomes by surgeon. Uh, individual objective measures are then compared to baseline and to national benchmarks. Um, I include measures from everything from length of stay to post-acute disposition and readmission rates. In the very beginning, I used to be very careful to uh, redact the surgeon names, but over time they said, you don't need to do that anymore, Alice. You can just take those off. We want to see what each other is doing. Um, an example of variation between the surgeons early on was transfusion rates and the total joint bundle. One of the surgeons had a lower transfusion rate than the others. Today, um, after seeing the dashboards and comparing metrics, all three surgeons are on the same page. A change in practice in conjunction with a new policy has reduced um, the transfusion rate in that population. And in addition, it also was discovered that the auto transfusion device wasn't, was no longer used. So that also allows for easier ambulation and increased patient comfort. Another very critical component of successful bundle work is to manage post-acute care resources. Um, the Model 2 bundles are 90 days long. That leaves many, many days that are potentially outside of our purview, even though we are still responsible for any related health care costs during that time. Uh, to mitigate the risk, Bay State has built strong relationships with post-acute partners and much work has been done by the Bay State Health Strategic Post-Acute Care Committee. The committee is sponsored by the President's Cabinet and has established a preferred provider network. The, it's based on um, quality, service, and patient satisfaction criteria. This was a very important element um, for the bundle work as it really did set the stage for developing close working relationships with post-acute care partners at the bundle level. So each of our bundles works with a subset of that preferred provider network. Um, the results of collaboration were seen early on, in the, especially in the total joint bundle, where the length of stay at the preferred facilities has dropped um, by several days. We have post-acute care group meetings that um, happen regularly. We were meeting actually every single month. We discuss any issues that may impact the care of our patients. The meetings are very well attended. Um, I'd have to say that over the past year, the attendance has actually grown, where I think we're probably going to have to get a, a much bigger room. They're attended by a wide variety of professionals from both the acute care setting as well as preferred provider setting and even medical directors of some of the groups that, that uh, practice in the preferred provider settings, they've attended as well. The discussions are open and honest and performance is shared. It's complete transparency. We will discuss issues that affect the patient's care. We talk about what's working well, all areas of opportunity. If an event has occurred at one of the facilities, we'll talk about that. 
they'll give us feedback on what we can do better to make the transitions. Um, our goal is to improve the care of our patients, um, improve transitions across the continuum, and to prevent and to reduce preventable readmissions. Um, overall, I have found the bundle and navigator role to be a very rewarding experience. Um, not to say that we don't have our challenges because they certainly do exist, but they are far outweighed by the fact that I feel fortunate to have the opportunity to work with dedicated professionals within our organization and beyond. Bundle work does bring teams together in a whole new way. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Alice. Really, really uh, good stuff. I want to remind everybody, thanks uh, for that, all those comments. Um, fine that folks are starting to tee up some questions. Don't forget to uh, put those into all participants. A reminder that you can download uh, all the slides that we share with you today as well as the chat. Anyone who is just joining by phone and not computer, uh, a reminder that you can also ask for those materials at info at IHI.org. All right, I'm going to turn now to uh, Mark Jarrett and Susan Browning from North Shore LIJ. Uh, I'm going to start off kind of right in the middle of a, a kind of a, a meaty issue. Susan Browning recently wrote in a blog for Health Affairs that according to some surveys, physicians aren't exactly sold on the idea yet of global payments. And Mark has also talked, we discussed this on one of our planning calls, about the very important need to address physician concerns, a lot of cultural issues here. So we're going to jump right in there in the deep end, and whichever one of you wants to go first, uh, we'll give uh, Susan and, and Mark uh, the microphone right now, and then we'll hear from Mark Hiller. Thanks. Yeah, this is Mark Jarrett, and uh, thank you again for the opportunity to speak, and I'm going to start off, and then Susan's going to fill in all the gaps that I'm sure I will leave. Um, we'll, first, before we even get to the issue, the very important issue of how we get physician alignment and the issues associated with it, uh, just wanted to talk a little bit for a second about North Shore LIJ, just everybody has the picture of what uh, the health system is like and some of the, the barriers and, and, and problems that we have. You see on the one slide we're 19 hospitals uh, spread over a very wide um, real estate uh, picture. We also have over 400 ambulatory sites, approximately 10,000 physicians and another 2,000 uh, advanced care practitioners who are uh, part of our staff and the vast majority are voluntary. Uh, you can see on the next slide if we advance it, no, oh, there we go. Uh, we obviously have a clinical enterprise. We have a large educational enterprise. We have a medical school, a new medical school, which actually in uh, two months is going to be graduating its first full class. Uh, we have a large research uh, arm. Uh, and just besides everything else to point out, we also have a new insurance company, which we started two years ago. And I think what this reflects is the potpourri of uh, different types of payment systems, whether it be uh, CMMI, bundle payments, uh, ACOs, MSSPs, uh, for an a, uh, industry that's not supposed to use abbreviations, we take abbreviations every minute to add a new way of paying ourselves. So we have that as, as, as certainly a challenge. And if you go to the next slide, uh, just before we get into the specifics of bundles, just to point out the issues that we face in quality. As a system, we've decided to take a long-term view 
on quality and safety in terms of what has the most impact on the largest number of patients. Uh, there are a lot of metrics out there, as you all know, were measured by a lot of people, and as you can see at the last bullet point, we have to pay attention to those because clearly they have financial implications. But our real quality plan, uh, strategic plan, involves looking at the long term where we can make the most difference because it's not always about the report card, it's about what really accounts for patients. Uh, and something else that's a little bit of more of a hurdle for us, uh, we concentrate on all 19 hospitals and all of our sites. So we're a system that doesn't believe that just, you know, you're going to get different care at a tertiary quaternary institution than you will at another institution. Uh, we think that no matter where you're treated for pneumonia, uh, whether it be in the quaternary hospital or in a small community hospital, you receive the same standard of care and the same quality of care. And that makes it a little bit more difficult for us as a system because it's a large lift. Now, in terms of the issue with bundled payments, uh, we're doing bundled payments right now with total joint replacements, uh, COPD, and coronary bypass. And as I said, it represents a small section of all the things that we're starting to do now and pay for performance uh, because we've really recognized that we have to be on that page. From the physician viewpoint, the hardest thing is to to get them, especially for procedure-oriented physicians, such as surgeons, to think in terms of the big picture, to think of not only what occurs in the hospital, but what occurs across the whole continuum of care, and it gets to the issue that was just raised uh, previously about post-acute care. Uh, they can't just think in terms of the medicine of it, but it really is about the total patient. And I think that gets to another issue which is that we all have a lot of metrics that started out as structural, went to process, and now go to what we think are good outcomes, but really the outcomes that are going to count are the patient-centered outcomes. Our patients will expect that they won't get an infection. Our patients will expect they will not get a failure of a prosthesis. They do want to know how soon can they go back to work, how soon can they play golf, how soon can they take a long walk uh, with their family members or play with their grandchildren. Those are the important things for joint replacement. And all the things that we kind of measure really are important for us to figure out how to deliver the right care, but in the end, it's what the patients think. And that is a paradigm shift for physicians to start to think about because they've always thought in terms of process and little discrete data points that are e you know, not easy to measure all the time, uh, but that they can get their hands around. But patients expect that that's what's going to happen. So it's much like, you know, buying a car. Uh, you think it's going to start every morning. You know it's going to get to you where you're going to go. The question is, do you have a heated steering wheel, and are you going to be cold for five minutes or two minutes when you get in in the middle of the winter? That's what's important to you as a driver because you think all the other things are going to happen. So that's kind of where we, we, we see the, the harder parts. And, Susan, I'm going to turn it over to you now. Thanks, so Mark. a couple of points a couple of points that I can build on that uh, Mark spoke about. Um, he talked about specifically the proceduralist and the specialist, and, and that was the focus of um, the survey results that we were seeing nationally in terms of physicians not necessarily um, being brought into a change in the reimbursement structure. There have been expressed concerns that a specialist or a proceduralist who is focusing on one episode within the continuum of care 
the outcomes clearly are impacted by what happens at other points along the continuum. And so a non-compliant patient in a primary care environment who evolves into a surgical patient is likely to have a, a, a poorer outcome than a compliant patient who's been taking care of themselves and, and uh, complying with all of the regimens along the way. Uh, and that physician now, that proceduralist, if he or she is put at risk for part of their compensation, there are clearly concerns on their part that they may not be able to impact, fully impact the outcomes of those patients. So that was, that was one of the issues that we, that we saw expressed across nationally across many surveys. Uh, and I think that what it points to is the need really to be looking at this in a holistic way um, with team-based structures and team-based processes. The other issue that's been brought up by many physicians is that the metrics um, that are being utilized are not necessarily evidence-based. Um, now, particularly in the bundle, in the stroke bundle that we've been active with at North Shore University Hospital, um, which is the one of the quaternary sites in the health system, that has not been so much of an issue because the physicians and the physician leadership were able to select those metrics that they found to be key to, to impacting the outcomes. So the issue of evidence-based didn't come so much into play, but certainly, um, you know, the issue of team-based and structures and looking at data um, was critical to being able to establish the stroke bundle and implement it successfully. What we do see, though, as an ongoing challenge, as we're now one year out uh, with one year of experience with the stroke bundle, is that even though the uh, financial impact directly is to the quaternary site, the acute care hospital, when these patients are getting discharged, they're going to acute rehab in another facility in the health system. And the goal is to make sure that patients are um, ultimately moved into the appropriate environment post-acute. And in our case, it's been increasing the number of patients who go home uh, from, the acute, from the acute setting rather than to acute rehab. So that clearly has had a negative impact on one of our particular sites that has a large acute rehab unit. And trying to keep that communication internally about the negative impact on one site versus the positive impact on another site has been a challenge, but it, it's one that we are certainly rising to the occasion on. Thank you very much. And that last point that you made, Susan, um, is maybe something uh, during the Q&A um, Kathy might address, and maybe it's uh, near and dear to the kinds of issues that Mark Hiller hears about. Uh, so let me bring him in, and we're just a little bit uh, 231. Uh, Mark uh, has some very important things to say, too, and then we'll get to your questions. Mark uh, Hiller, I want to thank you, and you're busy, particularly doing a lot of speaking, um, for joining us, and you're going to help us pull back the lens. Maybe you can tee off this last comment that was made and uh, tell us a bit about Premier's bundled payment collaborative. <laughs> and uh, I'm curious if any things you're hearing from North Shore, LIJ, and from Bay State, uh, and Kathy at the beginning also resonate with what you're you've been hearing. Thanks a lot. Well, thank you, Madge. And uh, first, I want to thank not only you, Madge, but also all of IHI for having me on with the rest of the, uh, with the distinguished guests that I happen to be uh, lucky enough to be on this panel with and have the opportunity to present some of the learnings that we have uh, found along the way. We've been engaged with members since this uh, program was first announced back in 2011, and uh, frankly, it's a little hard to believe that it's been four years just about now since uh, since this program was rolling out, where in my mind we're in the beginning of what I've 
found, frankly, be a great experiment that I think will help us all find a way that will result in lowering the cost of health care while either retaining or uh, I've seen so many instances where it feels like we're actually enhancing the quality of the care that's being provided to the patient. And we're really starting to, as uh, Mark and and Susan mentioned and Alice as well, really starting to focus so much more on the patient uh, when we're looking at these uh, opportunities within these bundles. And I think that when we think about uh, cost, it isn't necessarily kind of its own little thing that we focus on separately from the quality and outcome and, and satisfaction and experience side of things. You know, to me, I'm, I'm actually a finance person, but I look at this as if we're improving the quality of the patient's experience and they're not having to be go back to an acute care setting because they had a surgical site infection or those kinds of things. That improving that experience and not having them go back through those uh, doors of a hospital, um, frankly, helps us reduce the cost of the episode. So I think that uh, I feel lucky that I get to work with so many great people in this area. Uh, you asked a little bit about the premier bundle payment collaborative, and that is something that we put together back in 2011, and we've had the luck of uh, also working with Bay State in that collaborative. But we have over a 100 hospitals that we've been working with on a variety of different episodes, and, and what I'm hearing from the rest of the panel rings true in so many instances. I mean, the, the uh, fact that there's now this data that we run into so frequently, the fact that not only physicians, but also hospitals, you know, hospitals have a lot of data. Not Before my premier life, I worked in the hospital and I was over many aspects of uh, payer contracting and so forth. But this data that we now have access to is really opening some eyes, and I think it's surprising some people with the amount of costs that are in the post-acute area. Uh, even in a joint um, joint replacement episode, uh, I think that what we what we find is shocks a lot of people. Um, you know, we've had physicians even that visibly get upset when they start to to uh, recognize and see sometimes for the first time that what their patients actually go through in terms of the 90 days post-discharge from their operation. And so I think that these bundles have been a great experiment and, and an opportunity to bring so many different uh, providers together, together to really focus on the right things that I, I, I'm very, very optimistic about this model uh, being successful over time. Um, in the Should we go back to your what Premier has learned? I'm sorry, I, we were flipping around your, your slides and trying to stay with you. Should we go back to what Premier has learned so far? Would that be helpful? That would be fine. Yeah. I actually can't see which slide you're oh, on. Oh, I'm sorry. This is, this is the one that, that says, uh, oh, right, you're on your cell phone. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Travel. <That's okay>. yeah, <laughs> this is the one you say, uh, critical mass of volume, physician alignment, retrospective yes. versus prospective, and post-acute episode impact on cost. Maybe you can just quickly run through those if that makes some sense, and then we'll open things up. Thanks. Absolutely. Okay. So. You know, what we have found is we have many members that are alive in this program, some that have low volume, some that have much higher volume, and 
and obviously, as everybody I'm sure can guess, the, the ones with the low volume have much uh, greater swings in their um, their performance from month to month and quarter to quarter. So, um, so they're continuing to move forward and be successful, but the volume issue does does have an impact. Uh, we also have quite a few members that found the program enticing back in 2011 and 2012, and they joined partially because they wanted another vehicle to better align with the independent positions in their marketplace. And so doing things like gain sharing have been very important to some of our members, but not all of our members. And we have members that are gain sharing with not only the surgeons and other physicians, but are also, in some cases, gain sharing with the post-acute providers, such as the skilled nursing uh, facilities or home health agencies. So that's been something that we've learned a great deal about as we've moved forward through this program. Um, I saw there was on, on the chat, there was a couple questions with regard to how the funds flow. And I think this next uh, bullet of, of mine about retrospective versus prospective payment really hits at the heart of that question. And that is, frankly, what we're seeing is there's a, a great um, collection of providers who have really chosen the what's called Model 2 in the Medicare program, which is a retrospective paid model. And so the answer to one of the chat questions is that you don't have to build a bundle payment program or contract around the receipt of a single lump sum payment. That that can, in fact, work for some providers, but many providers out there don't, frankly, have the uh, adjudication capabilities to pay providers from a single lump sum payment. So what we're finding is there's a, a lot of interest in the retrospective payment model where the billing cycle and the revenue cycle gets left alone and there isn't a need to figure out who all provided care to a patient during the bundle episode and then figure out what the rate is to pay them. You let the payers continue to do that while you focus on the clinical work and, and then basically the retrospective reconciliation part comes in and basically you compare yourself against a target and if you're above the target, then you owe the payer and if you're below the target, you, the payer owes you. And then the last thing on this slide, the post-acute episode impact on cost has been a very, very key. Alice mentioned it, Mark mentioned it, Susan mentioned it. And so I think that there's been a lot of learning. This has kind of been a black box for those of us like myself who came from a hospital environment uh, in terms of where the patient goes, how much time do they spend there, how much does that actually cost. And so there's been a, a great um, opening of, the, uh, of that black box, and we have a far better understanding now of what's going on with our patients than we ever did before by participating in these episode models. So let me turn it back to you, Madge. I know we're falling a little behind time. That's all right. I really appreciate it. I think it's all good stuff, and uh, I think you raised a lot of interesting issues, and there were uh, questions already coming up on the chat around finance. I think at some point we might devote more of a WHI to the financial piece. We sort of tried to focus a little bit more on getting everything else uh, in order uh, and uh, patients and the actual flow of care um, and it's been very interesting to hear about this theme of kind of embracing that post-acute environment. All right, some questions have already come in. Why don't you, uh, our wonderful audience, uh, think of some more, please. John, just remind people how to take part in the chat. 
Uh, just make sure that your chats are addressed to all participants in the chat field in the sentry bar at the bottom. All right, great. Okay, so um, Mark Hiller just picked off a couple things that came in around uh, payment. I s there was yet more things coming as you were speaking, but I'm going to flip back now to Alice. Um, somebody asked Alice if you could talk a little bit about benchmarking, um, saying benchmarking is good for providing direction of change. How do you uh, maybe set benchmarks um, and wondering particular about any of your experiences with this at Bay State, Alice? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, I don't. We don't actually choose them. Um, what I what I use for my dashboards is um, the CMMI well performing hospitals for one for the total joints. So I take the best performers and I use that on all of my my um, dashboards. For the cardiac for the coronary artery bypass surgery patients, I use the STS database, and that's the Society of Thoracic Surgeons. Um, which we are enrolled in, too. So I use the best performing in that database as well. Okay, thank you very much. I appreciate that. Um, boy, uh, the, the, the financial questions <laughs> are coming in fast and furious. So we'll try and get to them as many as possible. But I, I want to go back to methods used, because I just want to make sure we get in some of the stuff about staffing and buy-in. Can you describe methods used to gain buy-in from clinicians? Why don't we uh, have you, Mark, speak to that, and uh, we'll, we'll start there. Thanks. Mark, I'm sorry, Mark Jarrett. Yeah, hi. Uh, basically, like anything else in, in quality of safety, you have to explain to the clinicians why you're doing it. Uh, they, it, it. Obviously, finances make a difference to them, and I would not minimize it. However, they have to see the rationale of, number one, where healthcare is going. Number two, they have to see why it's probably going to be better for the patient. And three, most importantly, to get the buy-in, you need to provide the support services so they're not doing all the non-physician things to, to really complete the bundle. Uh, they, you know, you need to have all the support systems so they can, you know, we'll use the expression function at the top of your license. That's what the, all providers need to do, uh, and, you know, whether it's a physician, advanced care practitioner, a regular registered nurse. They need to be doing what they're really trained to do, and a lot of this involves social workers, case managers, etc. And if you don't provide that support, then you'll never get the buy-in. But if you make it easier for them, it takes a little convincing, but generally they'll go along with it because most of them are now aware, you know, the 80-20 rule. 80% clearly see where we're going. You don't work on the 20%, you start with the 80%. Okay, thanks. Alice, any thoughts on that? I think, well, we were very fortunate to start with two bundles and two very small um, physician surgeon groups. So um, I think that we did a lot of bundle education. So it took a long time. It, wa it wasn't an overnight thing. I also think that um, the data helped too. I think that there was a lot of surprise um, on a couple different levels of um, seeing variation amongst that, their, their, their practices. Um, and the other piece I noticed in the, the especially in the cardiac surgery is um, the surprise at, uh, Mark actually had alluded to this, that the, um, the surprise at the post-acute utilization and the resources that were spent in that field too. So I think once that they were, they became immersed in 
the whole bundle world, they, they started to become more and more engaged. And when they found that there was a link between the bundles and quality and outcomes, the engagement increased. Mm -hmm. This is Mark Madge, if you don't mind my adding no, please, uh, please. One, one more element about this. Because uh, I, I think what was what I just said was very appropriate in terms of, uh, you know, getting to look at the data. You have to get the physicians to understand that a lot of this isn't always based on evidence-based medicine. And there can be more than one right way to do things. Because you're often going to ask physicians to change some of the patterns practice that they've been doing for many years and have been successful at. And to be successful, however, at this type of endeavor in a bundled payment, you have to convince them there may be more than one right way to do it. And in order to get variability out of the system, we have to do one standard way of doing it. Not that you were doing it the wrong way. It's just we have to pick one so that we can keep things standardized and therefore pick up any variations as we go along. And, and that's very important. So they don't, you know, you can't make it like, well, this is the best way to do it. Mm -hmm. No, your way may have been just as good, but we've all gotten together and discussed it, and this is the one way we're going to do it, not that your way is wrong. I think it's very important when you're dealing with physicians. Okay, thanks. Let me throw out to you, Mark Hiller, uh, just a couple. You're probably seeing these, too, a few kind of finance questions. Um, people are wondering about examples of gain sharing with post-acute providers. There are a few questions about that, about including post-acute care facilities. Uh, every, some folks are asking, how do you gauge what risk you're taking on? Uh, are there cost-relevant metrics that can help you decide around bundled payments? Um, yeah, let's start there. And oh, there was another question about whether commercial payers are also uh, who are in this space are open to retrospective models. Sorry, a lot to throw at you. <laughs> Go ahead. Are you there, Mark Hiller? I hope I didn't lose him. Oops, all right. We might have lost Mark for a moment. All right, there, um, I'm not quite sure where Mark Hiller went, but we'll uh, hopefully get him back. He's on a, a cell. Um, there was also, there was a question here that uh, said, um, do you know of, well, I'll read this one that just came in. Do you know of examples of bundling of maternity care that includes out-of-hospital birth centers? I'm not sure who could address that, but if anyone would like to jump in, please do. I'm not, this is Mark Jarrett, yeah. I'm not aware of any right at this point. Okay, okay. Um, so what about also programs? It says, could each of the panel members suggest one program they have seen to increase patient adherence and in what service line? Um, so that, that issue came up, um, maybe the word compliance, but sort of getting patient buy-in in the same way patients, so patients can also be part of uh, being on board this whole process. Um, and anything come to mind there? Joint replacement is clear. This, this is yeah. Go ahead. This is this is Mark. Um, I think that not specifically just for this alone. I think culturally, the whole team has to take the approach of uh, shared decision making and mm -hmm. patient education. It can't be just focused on this one thing because you can't fragment the way you provide care to patients. So I think you have to make the leap to the fact that you're partnering with patients in general. And then this may be the first test of it, but you first have to do that, that, that pre-work, so to speak, 
with not only with physicians, nurses, everybody, so that they're used to that concept, which is honestly a little bit foreign to, to, many, to many of the practitioners. Okay. All right. That sounds good. All right. And uh, somebody was curious about North Shore LIJ, about having your own insurance product <laughs> and whether that's helped bring into focus the need for robust quality and population health management. Uh, has that been sort of another boost in that direction? It certainly does. Um, you know, it, it makes you think about things in a very different way when you're totally responsible for the patient in every place that they go, whether it be, you know, the, uh, to the pharmacy, to the, you know, to, to a private, you know, to a, a primary care practice or a specialist or in the hospital. So it really starts to reshape the thinking away from classical fee-for-service medicine uh, where, you know, the more you do, the more you get and starts us down the road of really value-based care uh, and by, by building the infrastructure with it and thinking about it and being forced to obviously, because of economics, to, to address it, I think it's starting to change the thought process of, of not only physicians but also administration as well. Okay, thanks. Here's a good question. As performance improves and variation in practice is reduced, are you changing the metrics to drive further QI and or changing savings risk sharing? Um, and maybe does this change by bundle? Kathy, Luther, maybe I'll just bring you in here. Uh, you, of course, have had a lot of experience with our, experience with our own joint replacement learning community. Uh, any, any thoughts on that? I mean, we talked about being at an early stage at this work, but maybe we're also some are further along. Thanks. So I think there are um, several things to consider. Um, one of the things is, and it's been mentioned by all the panelists here that we saw, is when physicians and clinicians actually start to see the total impact of what's happening to patients, they really can see how they can make things not only more efficient, they can make their own care um, better, and, and they can get better at what they do. As they get better at what they do, they are able to change their own internal metrics and how that translates into uh, payment mechanisms is up to each organization to decide. But like anything else, what you didn't think you could do six months ago and you now find you can do, you can also say, and I know three ways that we can get better and, and do this in an even more effective way um, at saving costs. So um, we see that really across the board. And I think everybody's alluded to this that, they're referring to um, condition-based medicine, everybody around the table, full cycles of care as far out as, as folks can go uh, within their system and understanding the cost of each element. Okay. I'm curious, uh, apart from post-acute care, what other silos um, end up having to be broken down somewhat across the continuum? Um, for communication continuity, obviously these are all now central things in all of healthcare uh, and health transformation. But how much global payment is kind of forcing that even more? Um, Alice, could you possibly speak to that? Uh, who's talking to one another more that didn't before? Well, I think there's a lot of talk and conversation changing in the primary care specialist world as well. Um, so we're going well beyond the, um, the direct caregiver team, but also um, into that whole specialist world. And we're looking at medical home. Um. 
so do you mean when you say you're kind of going beyond so that as part of whether or not they're actually in the same contract, but it's kind of pushing uh, much more cooperation and communication? Well, they're, they're not in the same contract, at least in our bundle, our current bundle work, but they're very integral to our success in the bundle work. So there are conversations going on in the larger arena, okay. setting the stage for future work. All right. I think we may have Mark Hiller back. Uh, can you hear me? We sure can. You know, just when we had about five questions for you, we lost you. <laughs> well, I was actually able to hear everything, but you guys couldn't hear me for some reason. So, <laughs> so sorry. Uh, do you want me? That's okay. Well, we're glad to have you back. Do you want to? Do, do you sort of still have in mind uh, some of the things people were asking about? Uh, I think it had to do with sort of figuring out your risk whether commercial payers are open to retrospective um, examples yeah. of game uh, sharing. So kind of a, 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 dare I say, a bundle of questions here. Thanks. I, I do remember hearing that um, before I dropped off and dialed back in because I couldn't uh, talk. Sorry. But um, <laughs> the, the commercial carriers are actually looking at uh, retrospective uh, models. Uh, we actually worked with a national carrier who um, – basically stopped doing prospective models because of the difficulty of it. So, yes, there are commercial carriers doing retrospective. Uh, with regard to risk, one of the things we look at is the variability of cost around uh, the episode and, and how far those costs um, are spread and the frequency of high-cost cases versus low-cost cases and so forth and, and look at the various different outlier provisions or in the Medicare world, there's three different risk tracks that provide outlier protection. So we analyze uh, that data and look for the right level of risk protection for our member given their appetite for being aggressive or being more conservative. And then in terms of gain sharing, it's been interesting because in the beginning, typically, all of our members believe that, you know, if we're going to work with the post-acute providers and they're going to see that uh, reduction of their volume is part of how you reduce cost in this model, that they're not going to want to participate and, therefore, um, they need to gain share with those providers. We've, we actually have a few providers that did include uh, skilled nursing and other post-acute providers in their gain-sharing design and are now looking at revising their gain sharing design, taking those partners out because those partners, not because they haven't been great partners, but because the partners themselves are saying, look, we don't really, the gain sharing part of it is nice, but it's not really what we're here and what, what's of most interest to us. We mostly want to be a part of your program and be part of your preferred provider network. And so that's really what's um, of most value to us. And as long as we can maintain that relationship, getting a few extra dollars to the game share isn't really worth the complexity and the administrative uh, burden of doing it. So we've actually had some members that are, because of that, are starting to look at simplifying their game sharing model and primarily bringing it back to be a more physician-focused model. So those are really quick answers to several yeah. uh, pretty in-depth questions. Exactly. I appreciate you. You, you responded quite well and succinctly. John, uh, quick uh, reminder uh, to folks about some things, and then we'll get some wrap-up comments. Thanks. Yeah. 
Yeah, of course, Madge. Uh, well, did you like what you heard today on <laughs> WIHI? Did you find it valuable, pun intended? Uh, beginning on March 25th, IHI will be offering a new expedition on hospitals preparing care teams for a bundled payment. Joining our expedition will help you and your team understand the benefits of a value-based purchasing model, learn about an activity-based cost account methodology, and engage stakeholders in building care bundles and redesigning care teams. For more information, visit IHI.org expeditions. All right, thanks, John. All right, we're going to go around the horn, and mostly I'll let everyone uh, do it in free form, uh, make your final remarks. I think, Alice, if you don't mind, I'll start with you. And there was a good question uh, you said you often get, which is, what's the staffing required for successful bundle work? And I'm wondering, as kind of part of some of your closing remarks here, you could just fold that in somehow. So Alice, we'll start with you. Sure. First of all, thank you for this opportunity again, Madge, and, and IHI. Um, the staffing required, there is an infrastructure that is required to support the bundle work. Um, and I'm, an, I'm a new FTE, so I am definitely an additional um, staffing required, but also there's a considerable investment of time and resources that are critical to success. Uh, there's many in the organization that have dedicated much time to bundle work. Um, that's the quite a cross-section of the organization. We're talking quality, finance, case management, RVNA, rehab professionals. Um, and I've also found it um, helpful, too, um, along the way to have a dedicated coordinator in each of the populations that we deal with in bundles. Um, it's been a tremendous help. Okay. Thank you so much uh, for your wisdom and um, telling us about what's going on at Bay State. Alice, appreciate it a Thank lot. Thank you. Okay, great. Mark, Jared, and Susan, so, uh, some final thoughts from you, too. Um, at least for us, on the, uh, as it relates to the stroke bundle um, and the other, the COPD, joints, and cardiac that Mark mentioned, uh, the hiring and uh, institution of the nurse navigator role has been most critical for us because um, the nurse navigators have been the central point of communication and coordination in speaking with patients, with family, setting expectations with staff, uh, coordinating with the physicians, et cetera. And we, we noticed an immediate difference uh, pre-hiring of the nurse navigators and post-hiring of the nurse navigators and saw how we were much more readily achieving success with respect to the metrics uh, once we had the coordinator role on board. Okay, thank you. Susan, Mark, Jarrett, anything you want to add? Nope, I think Susan has summed it up well. Okay, thank you both very much for participating. Uh, Mark Hiller, uh, final thoughts from you. We put you on the spot with a lot of <laughs> rapid-fire finance questions. So you did a great job. Any any final thoughts? Well, I, I think that uh, we should expect that this isn't going away. In fact, our bundlers, we've got bundlers that went live back in 2013, are adding bundles. And, you know, CMS just announced the oncology bundle payment um, kind of model, the oncology care model, which is very bundle payment-like. So I, I suspect that um, we're not going to see it go away, that it's great that we're all learning, and I look forward to, uh, you know, the experiment and working with everyone uh, as we move forward in this. So uh, thank you for having me on this call oh, today. All right. Sorry for the technical difficulty. Oh, not at all. I mean, who knows what went on. We're glad you came back, and uh, thank you so much, Mark, for your participation. Kathy, final thought from you? Um, thanks, Madge, and thanks to all our panelists for actually um, 
taking the theoretical framework and making it real. I have two um, thoughts from what everybody said. One is surprise. Um, you all indicated that the data became surprising to people, particularly physicians, once they began to see the full scope of care and the cost of each of those, and um, actually in some cases made them very willing participants in, in how to craft things more effectively. The second is coordinator or nurse navigator. Um, we see both of these concepts surprise um, when folks do the full cost and the full package and what patients go through and how complex it can be. And secondly, success is when it's really um, vested in one person or job title that helps pull everything together. Not as their only job, but, but when they work together in a very different way, like I described earlier, um, with someone coordinating the, the work and the outcomes um, in a focused way. So thank you, Madge. All right, thanks. That ties it together very well. Thank you, Kathy. Thank you, panelists. Thank you, our audience today. I appreciate your interest and engagement. Next up on WIHI on March 26th, uh, we're going to be talking about the managers and management we need to improve care. And I dare say that middle managers are very related to the topic uh, at hand today. A reminder, you can download the chat and any slides we used uh, when you log off. You can ask for them from info at IHI.org. And all of this, including the audio, will be posted to IHI.org tomorrow. Don't forget what John asked, which is if you could complete the survey, we always want to make WIHI a better program. Our discussion continues after the show on IHI's Facebook page. If you felt like tweeting, we look forward to your tweets as well. Any questions whatsoever, email info at IHI.org. There are wonderful people who help make WIHI possible. They include John Gothier, Matt Morris, Jameson Case, Vicki Minden, Jesse McCall, Jane Rossner, Val Weber, Ruth Smith. It's my privilege to host Ellen Mario Bello. I'm sorry. It's my privilege to host a program that's about spirited learning and improving health and patient care most of all. For the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, I'm Madge Kaplan. Good day.